I saw a mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in cloud, with a rainbow round his head. His face was like the sun, his feet like pillars of fire. He planted his right foot on the sea, his left on the land, and standing on the sea and the earth, he raised his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives for ever and ever, saying, There shall be no more time. What would the world be like if there were no more time? That stupendous question is the one Olivier Messiaen tries to answer in music in his Quartet for the End of Time, which was inspired by those verses we just heard from the book of Revelation. The end of time also means the end of the world as we know it, a terrifying prospect, even if for a devout Catholic like Messiaen it's a consummation to be looked forward to. And there are places in this quartet, as in the opening of the second movement which we've just heard, where Messiaen evokes that terror. But it isn't the dominant mood of the piece. Immediately after that furious opening to the second movement, we hear this. The old world has already been swept away, and we've been ushered into the calm of the hereafter. Impalpable from afar, like jets of water in a rainbow, is how Messiaen directs the players at that point. The idea of juxtaposing that kind of total contrast is something we'll encounter again and again in this piece. The contrasts don't just happen successively. In fact, what makes this music so extraordinary is the way utterly disparate things are allowed to exist together simultaneously. And given Messiaen's peculiar expressive purpose, this is only logical. When the last trump has sounded, it isn't just time that ends. The whole human world of language, style, convention and history is obliterated at a stroke. Of course, music as we know it would also come to an end. And what would take its place is a kind of music so strange that we have to resort to paradox to describe it. In the preface to the quartet, Messiaen declares that he tried to conjure the harmonious silence of heaven. Nevertheless, Messiaen wasn't writing for the angels or for the resurrected souls of the dead. He was writing music for ordinary human listeners to be played by human players. 
and so he was forced to deal with the means of music that we use in this Vale of Tears. What he had to do in the Quartet for the End of Time was force the mundane realities of notes struck on the piano or scraped on the violin to yield symbols of something far from mundane. He had to use harmony to paint something beyond harmony, melody to paint something beyond melody. How precisely he achieves that will be the subject of this programme, but here's a foretaste. Let's hear that opening of the second movement again. headlong rush in the violin and cello is repeated note for note a few bars later in the passage we've already heard, but now it's much, much slower. What an extraordinary idea to take a phrase suggestive of wrath and slow it down so far that it becomes suggestive of eternal peace. It's unsettling to have the temporal markers of a melody upset in this way. Our normal experience of music is that the shape, character and tempo of a melody fit like hand and glove. And in most musical contexts, to make a big change of a melody's speed usually signals an intention to parody. Think of the immensely slow can-can in Saint-Saëns' Carnival of the Animals. But that's not the effect of this music, because Messiaen's melodic shape isn't the bearer of a specific character or style. It's more like a latent symbol, waiting to be filled with new meanings. That's one way Messiaen creates a sense of a music that's not of this world, even while being cunningly designed to communicate very effectively. Another way is through his use of unusual modes or scales, which I'll come to later. But let's turn now to the way Messiaen tries to literally put an end to time in music. His most radical moves in that direction are in the first of the quartet's eight movements. Nothing like this first movement had ever been heard before, and it must have been quite a shock to the first audience, particularly given the extraordinary circumstances in which the premiere took place. The audience was enormous, somewhere between four and five thousand. I say somewhere between because no one really knows. There were no tickets, and the performance took place out of doors on a freezing cold night in 1941. The venue was Stalag 8A Prisoner of War Camp in Silesia, where Messiaen had been incarcerated after being captured while fleeing from advancing German troops near Nancy. Years later, the composer remembered the scene. The cold was excruciating, and the Stalag was completely buried under snow. Our instruments were completely dilapidated. Etienne Pasquier's cello had only three strings, and the keys of my piano went down but did not come up again. But never had I been listened to with such rapt attention and comprehension.
That's the beginning of the Quartet for the End of Time, which was not only premiered in the POW camp, but composed there too. Three of Messiaen's fellow prisoners turned out to be musicians, and to begin with, he wrote a short piece for them, scored for cello, violin and clarinet. That's the kind of diversion any composer might have indulged in to relieve the boredom and the constant fear of being a prisoner of war. But only Messiaen could have had the idea of embedding a little jeu d'esprit inside a 50-minute meditation on the Book of Revelation in eight movements with an immensely difficult piano part written for himself to play. Messiaen tells us in the preface that there are eight movements because seven is the perfect number, being made up of the six days of creation sanctified by the Sabbath. This seventh day prolongs itself into eternity and becomes the eighth day of unblemished light and unalterable peace. That explanation has a way of giving personal choice a divine mandate. Messiaen seems to be at pains to obliterate his presence as a composer, as if all the important decisions were made for him by scripture. That's most true of the first movement, Liturgie de Cristal, which works like some giant mechanism of wheels within wheels, which the composer simply sets in motion. Again, the effect is to prise apart aspects of music we think always go together. Take the piano part of the music we've just heard. It projects a cycle of chords and a rhythm which really have nothing to do with each other. Here are the 29 chords in plain crotches with the rhythm stripped out. We hear that cycle of chords six and a half times in the course of the first movement, which lasts around two and a half minutes. But we don't hear them like that. They have a rhythmic pattern attached to them, which has 17 units of varying lengths, and which is also repeated continuously without any gaps from the beginning to the end of the movement. Now, something interesting happens if you try to glue these two cycles together. 17 into 29 won't go, which means that each time round the harmonic cycle, each chord will find itself attached to a different rhythm. Here they are together for two rhythmic cycles, or for one and a bit of the chord cycle. The cello part has a similar non-coincidence of notes and rhythms. The pitch sequence here is only five notes long. Here it is, played three times over.
The rhythmic cycle consists of 15 different durations, so it fits perfectly with those three revolutions of the cello's five pitches. And because 5 into 15 does go three times, after those three revolutions of the pitch cycle, we end up back where we started. To set up a musical machine and then allow it to unwind might seem more like cheating than real composing. But the guiding hand of the composer is revealed in all sorts of ways, the most obvious being the twittering cascade of birdsong played by the clarinet and violin, which floats above the cello and piano's imperturbable circlings. Messiaen's later scores are littered with exact identifications of bird calls scattered through the music. But here he remarks vaguely that a blackbird or nightingale improvise above the haze of sonorities a halo of trills which become lost in the heights of the treetops. Each instrument's part consists of a handful of these calls and songs which keep repeating. In the clarinet part there's one which gets varied in subtle ways. Here it is on its first appearance. Here it is, four bars later. And again, six bars later. In between come passages of winding melody. The violin part is less rhapsodic and more like a shuffling of a few short fragments, which hardly change at all. Three in particular stand out. Here's the first. And the second. And the third. Well, that might all seem very dry, but in fact, put together, these things make an effect that is far from dry. Let's hear now the whole of this astonishing music, the birdsong, the wheels within wheels, together rendering in sound the harmonious silence of heaven.
That's the end of the first movement of the quartet for the end of time. But the piece could have gone on for all eternity. It would certainly take several hours to work through all the permutations of the two cycles wheeling within the piano part. But it doesn't need to. Having had our glimpse into eternity, the music steps back into time. beginning of the second movement, the vocalise for the angel who announces the end of time. The fact that we seem to have gone backward from the calm of the end of time to the struggle to bring time to an end tells us that Messiaen's piece is not going to be a straight narrative. It's more like a series of musical meditations on themes and images from the Book of Revelation, all of which are simultaneously present. The piece reminds me of those medieval paintings where episodes in the Old and New Testaments are presented in the same conceptual space, as if they all existed in the same eternal now. Because the consummation of the process has, in a sense, already happened, the piece doesn't need to lead us towards it through some anguished psychodrama. Instead, what we have is a lattice of symmetries and interconnections. The first movement stands alone as a kind of prelude, but the other movements are all connected in various ways creating something which is more like a hall of mirrors than a narrative. For example, the second movement has a similar theme to another, the seventh, the glory of rainbows for the angel who announces the end of time. These two movements also share a musical idea we've already heard a lot of. Here's the beginning of the second movement again. Listen to the piano part. In the seventh movement, after twelve bars of yearning cello melody, we suddenly hear this. It's almost identical to the beginning of the second movement, with those deep left-hand bass chords agitated with semiquavers instead of being simply struck. There's a curious cut-and-paste quality about these changes that make them utterly unlike the variation techniques you get in Haydn or Beethoven. Again, they're unsettling, because things are ripped out of a context you assume was designed specially for them, and pasted into a completely different texture. There's an even more striking example of this in the fourth movement, an interlude that provides the only moment of respite from all the apocalyptic imagery.
that little plucked figure sounds in this context. Anyway, what I'd like to focus on is a moment quite early on. Now I could ask, doesn't the clarinet part there remind you of something? But that would be disingenuous of me, because the totally different context banishes the memory. In fact, we have heard it before, several times. Take away the last flourish, and that clarinet part from the beginning of the second movement is almost the same. So the extraordinary otherworldly nature of this piece is partly to do with the way Messiaen reuses material, throwing it into odd contexts, slowing it down, speeding it up. But of course the material is also strange in itself, both rhythmically and harmonically. Let's look at the rhythms first. In his book Technique of My Musical Language, Messiaen explains how a four-square rhythm can be given what he describes as an interesting limping quality. Imagine a rhythm made up of two short notes, then two long ones, then two shorts, then two longs, and so on. It would sound like this. Now, to give that plain and ordinary rhythm an interesting Messiaen-like quality, I'm going to throw in an extra half beat. This is how it sounds. The quartet for the end of time is littered with these additive rhythms, as they're called. Here's a splendid example, the beginning of the sixth movement, Dance of Fury for the Seven Trumpets. favourite technique is the strictly arithmetical enlarging or diminishing of a rhythm. Take this short passage from the sixth movement where Messiaen takes a very simple rhythm and alternately stretches it and squashes it. Additive rhythms and arithmetic augmentations are reasonably easy to hear. What's really hard to spot is what Messiaen called non-retrogradable rhythms. He liked them because they have what he called the charm of impossibility, a charm also possessed by his favourite scales, which I'll come to in a minute. But when Messiaen said these rhythms are non-retrogradable, that's to say, can't be played backward, he wasn't referring to literal impossibility. Of course you can play them backwards if you want to. But there's no point, because they sound the same backwards and forwards. They're palindromic. 
For example, in the sixth movement, Messiaen uses a pattern which begins with three beats, then has five, then eight, and then goes backwards to have five and three again. In fact, the entire movement consists of little more than a whole string of palindromic rhythms. Once again, this all sounds pretty dry and mathematical, and nothing much to do with music at all. But Messiaen turns these devices into a thrilling evocation of the awe-inspiring Angel of the Seven Trumpets. What that excerpt shows is that whatever the mood of the music at any given moment, it always floats free of any governing pulse. This is truly a quartet for the end of musical time as we know it. But just as striking a feature of Messiaen's musical world is its extraordinary harmonic colour. Messiaen literally saw harmonies as colours, and in the preface to the quartet he says of the seventh movement that I hear and see classified chords and melodies, known colours and forms. Then, after this transitional stage, I pass into the unreal and submit in ecstasy to a wheeling, gyrating interpenetration of superhuman colours. These swords of fire, these blue and orange lava flows, these sudden stars. 
hear the dazzling tangle of rainbows. Again, the mystical impulse joins hands with an acute analytical mind. Messiaen was fascinated by different forms of scales or modes, and in his book he elaborates a system of eight of them, all of which have that charm of impossibility he was so riveted by. What he meant by that was that each of these modes can be transposed only a very small number of times before they start to replicate the original pitches. So, as with the rhythms, it's not that this operation is literally impossible, more that it's pointless. For Messiaen, this made the modes a glowing symbol of eternity. As he put it, they approach the listener from the eternity of outer space and infinity. Here's Messiaen's mode 2, which is commonly used in the quartet. Note how that bottom note lacks gravitational pull. It doesn't really feel like a keynote. All the modes have this weightless feeling in common. Messiaen then proceeds to build a sequence of four-note chords on each of those notes. Now, just as Messiaen couldn't leave musical time behind utterly without condemning himself to silence, so his modal system turns out to have many points of contact with traditional harmony as we know it on this planet, overlapping with our normal scales to a degree. Because of that, it turns out that lurking within that very odd-sounding mode 2 are some Commodore Garden 7th chords, 4 to be exact. This allows Messiaen to slip back and forth between the otherworldly evocation of his own modal chords and the more familiar expressive implications of those seventh chords. Here's a passage from the seventh movement, the tangle of rainbows for the angel who announces the end of time. Above that, the violin and clarinet weave lines which have that same ambiguous quality of being familiar and yet remote. Here's the clarinet part. Let's listen now to those excerpts in context. We'll hear the first two minutes or so of that seventh movement, a passage which combines many of the extraordinary features of this miraculous piece. The richly coloured mode two, with its tantalising allusions to traditional harmony, the strange floating rhythms, and the sudden eruption of terror into calm.
Messiaen was very proud of the fact that his musical world seemed to be entirely self-created. In his technical book, he says that we shall salute the great names of modern times. Notice how Messiaen always uses the pontifical we. But all these borrowings will be passed through the deforming prism of our language to destroy the least resemblance to the model. Now, if that were true, Messiaen's music, however much it may dazzle and seduce on first hearing, would soon pall. But the marvellous thing about the quartet for the end of time, and what makes it to my mind among the greatest, if not the greatest, of his works, is the way it manages to be utterly personal in its evocation of a realm beyond this one, and yet full of memories of other music. Here's just one example from the third movement, which as yet we haven't heard at all. It's called Abim des Oiseaux, the Abyss of Birds, and it's a long, slow lament for solo clarinet, which paints the sadness of the abyss, which is time and the joy of the birds which float free from time into a realm of light and rainbows. Whenever I hear that, I'm always reminded of this. melancholy Cor Anglais solo which opens the third act of Wagner's Tristan and Isolde. Wagner was certainly one of Messiaen's musical heroes, as was Debussy, and there are other more distant echoes from Plainchant and from Indian music. But many people hear other, much less exalted influences, particularly in the two movements I haven't mentioned so far, the fifth and the eighth. Just like the second and the seventh, these two are closely related, so closely, in fact, that they seem like reflections of each other. They're both in a radiant E major, and they're both ecstatically long melodies. And they're also linked by the figure of Jesus the Redeemer, who softens the otherwise implacably severe and awe-inspiring scenario of the piece. The fifth movement, Praise to the Eternity of Jesus, occurs in the middle, just after the interlude, and so forms the still centre of the work. But the eighth comes at the very end, where it seems to cap everything that's come before. This gives the quartet a strange dual aspect. It seems to aim, emotionally speaking, both at its centre and at its end. And as for the pieces themselves, they're a distant descendant of those lacrimose slow movements beloved of 19th century French music, of which the prime example is the Meditation from Massenet's Thaïs. They're full of the core that's the instant symbol of sentimentality in music, the added sixth. And for many people, that makes them the stumbling block in appreciating this piece. 
But that's not the reason I've left them until last, because they don't embarrass me at all. In fact, I love them because they take a gigantic risk, the kind no composer living today would take. And by embracing the most vulgar means, they saw into the Empyrean. The reason I've avoided them is that they're impossible to analyse and impossible to illustrate. You either swallow them whole or not at all. The reason for that is their extreme length and their extreme slowness. The fifth movement is actually marked infinitely slow, an instruction which can't be observed in performances this side of the grave. The last movement, praise to the immortality of Jesus, is more reasonable. It's marked simply extremely slow. And to give you at least a flavour of this all-important aspect of the piece, I'm going to end with the second half of this final movement. To encounter the human aspect of the divine comes as a surprise, after all the grandeur, the anger and the calm music of the spheres that we've encountered up to now. But this is the genius of the quartet for the end of time. It gives us so many unforgettable images of something beyond our understanding. But right at its heart, we find that the sublime can also be a consolation.